Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Thing on Total Soccer Show, the show where we deep dive into one of the biggest topics in the beautiful game. Now, recently on TSS, we discussed the battle opening up between USL and MLS Next Pro. And today, we're digging into the big changes that appear to be coming in the women's game in the United States. The USL Super League is due to make its debut this August and has been granted Division 1 sanctioning by the US Soccer Federation, putting it on the same level as NWSL. Today, we're going deep on the USL Super League. We're looking at how it may sit alongside or maybe even usurp the NWSL and we'll consider the evolution of the women's game in these here United States. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today for a lovely discussion, it's Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello, Ryan. I mean, I said it was lovely. I don't know if you're going to be lovely. Are you going to be lovely? No. Good. Joe Lowry, how are you? (laughs) I'll be lovely, Ryan. Can I be lovely? Pick me. You're always lovely, Joe, and it's wonderful to have you here, and it's wonderful to have our good friend in his Sterling Albion shirt, Graham Ruthven, joining us. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. I note that you didn't use the abbreviation for the USL Super League, which is the USLSL. It just rolls off the the tongue, that one. Oh, is it going to have a website, USLSLsoccer.com? I hope it does. (laughs) (laughs) Soccerleague.com. Wonderful. Great stuff. Okay, uh, why don't we get straight into it? Uh, (laughs) Can I I just make it even more ridiculous to say that when the kickers were first starting out, the Richmond kickers, I believe they played in USISL, the USISL, so we could make it even more convoluted if you want. Yeah, let's go for it. (laughs) Does the US just really like a long acronym? Is that what it is? We crave it. (laughs) (laughs) We want to make our leagues more indecipherable from the beginning. Let's make it happen. All right. Well, uh, let's dig into it then. Joe, let's have a little pricey of the USL Super League. What is it? Is it super? What's it looking like as it comes towards us uh, in a few months? Uh, It was postponed. I believe it was supposed to start last year, but uh, we're looking at August 24 to get this thing rolling. Yep. There have been a lot of changes from the initial proposal for the USL Super League to now. Uh, as far as the acronym stuff goes, because I think this is a helpful bit of background as well. You think about USLSL, the USL Super League. Uh, USL is an organization that governs several different lower division until now soccer leagues in the United States. The USL Championship is the second division men's league. Internally, USL just calls that the championship. That is the second division in the United States on the men's side. They have USL League One, which is the third division uh, pro league on the men's side, along with MLS Next Pro, which is also third division. This gets very complicated very, very quickly. But we flip over to the women's side. The NWSL has been around now for a little while. And now we have the Super League, which is also operated by the United Soccer League USL. Confused yet? Great. Perfect. More is coming. As far as what the Super League actually is, it is not anything like the European Super League that has been proposed over and over and over again. It's just a league that they wanted to give a cool name and for some reason landed on Super League, which feels 
strange to me, but I'm going to set that aside. It is a new Division One's Division One Women's Professional League starting in August. We've discussed that already. The project was first announced in September of 2021. So this has been a few years now in the making, and I'm guessing even further back, you know, there, there was real planning going on inside of USL. Initially, USL announced that the Super League was going to apply for Division II sanctioning with US Soccer. The original plan was to be a D2 Women's League and to launch last year, Ryan. I think you mentioned that. But then in May of 2023, USL announced the intention for the Super League to be a Division I League, and that pushed the timeline back to 2024. So just recently, and part of the reason why we're doing this segment now, is because U.S. Soccer granted them that D1 sanctioning that was uh, that, that came about after a vote last Friday as a recording at U.S. Soccer's annual general meeting down in Dallas. So that does put them somewhat at odds with the NWSL from the jump, and we're going to talk plenty about that. The big top-line differentiator, as far as I'm concerned, between the NWSL and the Super League is that the calendar for the Super League is going to be aligned with Europe, or at least Europe's top leagues and the international calendar as well. So where the NWSL goes from March to November, for the most part, opener to championship, now the Super League is going to go from August to June. And I was on a, a presser with USL Super League president Amanda Vandervoort earlier this week, and she said there's going to be a winter break that sort of gets them through some of the winter months, likely parts of November and probably all or most of December. But that's the big differentiator. The calendar is going to be different, and USL believes that that is something that's going to help set them apart. Will it? We will find out. That, that's interesting, Joe, because I know the the men's side of USL also had quite in-depth discussions about switching their calendar yep. too. I wonder if that's a precursor to the entire USL doing Yeah, I, I would imagine that the men's side of the USL is watching this project very closely because, as you say, Ryan, it's one of the carrots, frankly, that USL has dangled along with ProRel in front of everybody and sort of you know, saying we're really thinking about these things. And I, I know for a fact that they are really thinking about them, but they are taking their time and trying to figure out, you know, are we actually going to do this? Or are we not really going to do this? And it, it doesn't make sense. And I would imagine they'll be paying very close attention to how this goes on the women's side. I did appreciate uh, with the Super League that they avoided Amanda Vandevoort when she was doing those that press conference, avoided any conversation about ProRel. And, and and not to say that she was like, oh, you know, we'll talk about it later. We'll see what happens. I think it was basically just like it's not a thing we're, we're looking into right now. I feel like on the men's side, USL has sort of been teasing that for a while and teasing conversations about it and teasing it being a theoretical possibility. Not to say that the Women's Super League won't pursue that at some point, but I like that that wasn't laid out as a an identifiable difference right away because it feels like they have plenty of uh, uphill work to go. I don't feel like they need to lump that one in as well. Graham, just a note on that Super League nomenclature. Uh, do we think this is a misstep in terms of the negative connotations of Super League or are they going sort of for Women's Super League, you know, the, the, the branding that we have yeah. elsewhere in the women's game? I think if you look at leagues throughout the world, the Super League name is is used in several countries in a European sense. Yes, it does have negative connotations, but guess what? This league is not being played or taking place in Europe, and it'll be largely for American fans. So I, I understand why that name makes the skin crawl a little bit, but I, I don't anticipate being it being a barrier to any kind of success. Okay. Um, Joe, just to get a little top line here, uh, eight teams uh, signed up at the moment and yep. more to come. Yeah, and, and getting eight teams is the bare minimum requirement for Division One sanctioning for U.S. soccer. So very quickly, this is this is how the process of becoming a professional D1 league works in, in American soccer, in the United States. So U.S. soccer has this thing called a pro league task force. And that task force, which sounds awesome Can in I get a badges? bureaucratic sort of way. I hope so. I hope they all show their badge. I hope it says, what would that be, like PLT? 
F. I don't know. USL, SL, P, T, F, whatever that is. It's just all the labels. They just threw them all on there just in case it needed any of them. Anyway, there is this task force that evaluates applications to see if leagues and clubs and owners meet the, the very standards that U.S. soccer has set out. And basically, if you reach those standards, you will be approved. So this is not, just to be very clear, U.S. soccer being like, oh, we want to sow chaos in the top division of, of women's soccer in our, in our country. That's not it. But USL did what they were supposed to do, and now they are a Division One league. You mentioned the eight teams. The markets are Brooklyn, Charlotte, in your neck of the woods, Ryan, Tampa Bay, Lexington, Kentucky, Fort Lauderdale, Dallas slash Fort Worth, Spokane, and Washington, D.C. And that last one, D.C., is the only one with direct NWSL overlap. There are some close calls in some other states, but I'm fascinated to see what happens on that front. Other others, uh, things you have to hit to be a Division One women's league in the United States, you have to have 75% of your clubs in markets with at least 750,000 people. They have done that. Each ownership group has to have one majority owner with a 35% share in the team with a net worth of at least $15 million, and you've got to be spread across multiple time zones. They've checked all of those boxes. They need to expand more yeah. by year four, to maintain that status, they have a number of markets that are either scheduled to join the league or are interested in doing so, including two in Arizona and Phoenix and Tucson. So it seems like things are progressing well enough on that front to meet the bars as they've been set. One, sorry, one last thing for me. Uh, as an aside, U.S. soccer, I'm fairly confident, you know, knows that their standards aren't super high. Like you run through that list, eight teams to have a Division One league is not a lot, right? Like there, there's no legit soccer league in the world that has eight teams. I think U.S. soccer knows that these standards maybe aren't exactly where they need to be, uh, but USL at the moment did what they needed to do, and now they have a Division One professional women's league. Just going back to that sanctioning process that you're mentioning, Joe, and the kind of the box ticking element yeah. of it, you know, like have you got, what is it, 750,000 people yeah. in 75% of the markets? Check. Have you got the 5,000 seater stadiums? Check. Is it just my European mind that thinks, that's a bit wild that someone can rock up, you can tick all the boxes and they go, right, here's division one status for you. Like that doesn't, I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing. And obviously we've seen it previously in American soccer where you do have competing leagues because you may, you don't have that kind of ladder, that high, that natural hierarchy. We've seen it before. It's nothing new. It, I still find it a, li a little bit wild that, 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 that can happen. Is that just me? No, it's wild. It's super wild. It feels very American in some way. It's like, ah, you know, you can, bootstrap your way to the top if you get enough money along the way but it is i can imagine it feels very foreign and in some ways it does feel odd to me as well but yeah. i have seen people like a lot of the debate has been about is this a direct shot at nwsl are they going to tear each other apart why would u.s soccer allow this to happen and to that last one yeah it's not as though they allowed it to happen exactly. it's basically when the uslsl shows up and says here like here's our documentation showing that we have all the things that we have to have they're checking to make sure that that is accurate, maybe giving them a little bit of leeway, because I think some of the stadiums have not been decided upon and one that has doesn't have 5,000, but maybe they're going to amend that as they go. But that aside, I, I feel like it's just a matter of like, yep, you have filed your paperwork and now you are technically Division One sanctioned. Now it's on you to make all of those things a reality. And I think that's as far as U.S. soccer goes in terms of the league is we've given you the documentation you need. Now you have to go out and do the things that you said you would do. Otherwise, you will lose that sanctioning pretty quickly. Taylor, I don't know if there's a good answer to this question or if we have it. But as a as a fellow European, what is the importance of or importance of sanctioning? What is the difference between Division One mm -hmm. and Division Two? Why should I care if a league mm -hmm. is Division Two sanctioned or Division One? What does it really practically mean? 
like I think a lot of it has to do with ambition and, and the money that re- is required of that ambition. Because they, if you want to be that top league in the United States, there has to be a permanence to what you're doing. And money, I think, is a way of reinforcing that permanence, basically. That's why you have that $15 million for one owner, $25 million or whatever it is across the ownership group, uh, is the idea that you have somebody there who can foot the bill, who can make sure that the lights will be on, who can make sure that this isn't just a fly-by-night organization. I think it's in response to how many leagues and teams have folded at various points in U.S. soccer's history or in the history of U.S. soccer. I think this is meant to be a establishing bare minimums that that are seen as the way that you can go about having a permanent league without sort of announcing you're going to be a league and then falling by the wayside really quickly. I think it's also a way to make sure that there isn't like a scammy nature to this, that it isn't just some sort of strange organization announcing, Hey, we're going to be the best league in America. You should give us all your money and you should really care about us. And then completely falling by the wayside when they don't actually have those aspirations. It basically is a way to ensure that, the league is going to do what it says it's going to do and that the individuals behind it can actually make that happen. Um, and then I think it gives you sort of a branding statement going forward. If you're trying to recruit players from abroad or you're trying to uh, influence a player to sign for your league or for a team in your league, having that Division One status does put you yeah. in a different category than Division Two or Division Three or being an unsanctioned league entirely. So I think there's a couple different reasons why it becomes important. Yeah, this is one of those stories where it is a big deal for all the things that you've just mentioned there, Taylor. I can't disagree with with any of that. And hearing Amanda Vandevoort talk about you know the league and and the ambition and the fact that it is it is starting in August of this year, there's you know there's a little bit of a thrill there in thinking this is actually going to happen. We're going to see a competitor league to the NWSL. There is a thrill there, but it's also not a big deal in another sense. There is a practical reality to this where if one of the two leagues is better and the product is better and it has better players and it has more fans and it has more teams then it will kind of naturally be the dominant league i think the d1 sanction makes a big statement but in practical terms i'm not convinced that it means all that much on the ground i mean fans are not going to think i'm going to support this team because they've got d1 sanctioning they're going to support that team because that team is more interesting to them in some way well, I, I think there is a lot of truth to that, Graham, at a national level. I, I don't know that I agree from a local perspective, right? You're, you're oftentimes a fan of a team in any sport because they're the team that's where you live. And I think in some ways the USL is, is very much competing with the NWSL. That's inarguable. Or, or making a statement that they want to compete at some point down the road. But in other ways, like they're also just competing with themselves and their own ability to put out a product that people want to come out and watch. And having D1 sanctioning is a huge part of that because from a marketing and PR perspective, getting people to come watch a, a top-level professional team is just easier than saying like, oh, you know, we're we're Division Two. Like that, that is a struggle for minor league, yeah. second division, third division teams. So I don't, I don't think it's just about the, the neutral fans saying, oh, the NWSL product is better. I'm going to go watch that. If you live in Phoenix, Arizona, you're not going to go watch that because you have to drive seven hours to get to a stadium. If all of a sudden there's a USL Super League team in your backyard. Like, odds are that's the team you're going to find yourself supporting. The, the point I'm making, though, Joe, is if, for instance, one of the the owners in the, the USL Super League doesn't have the £25 million net worth that is on the, the checklist for, for US soccer to get D1 sanctioning, let's say they, that was, that didn't happen and they ended up with D2 sanctioning, but then the league thrived anyway to such a point that Sophia Smith and Trinity Rodman and whoever end up playing in the USL Super League... 
that and when in that reality then the sanctioning becomes kind of a, a mute point because it is right. just the stronger league yeah in that unlikely reality yeah because you're all of this is unlikely that it's gonna it's gonna usurp nwsl but that's the, the ambition i'm just not sure yeah. that a sanctioning in, in any way kind of affects that ambition if that I makes think, any sense i think it, it's an immediate statement of ambition to say we are considering ourselves on par with the nwsl an established first division league with plenty of history plenty of teams plenty of influence in u.s soccer we are now considering ourselves in the same category. I think they've done a lot of work to not say we're challenging them, we're rivaling them, we want to be in opposition to them. But when you announce that you are forming a league in the same division as the existing one, you are saying right away that we are going to compete for you in terms of players, in terms of influence. Uh, Maybe having a different schedule alleviates that to some extent. But I think just by nature, if, uh, if there's a team in Brooklyn who are a second division team, it does sort of immediately make them a little bit less interesting because like, oh, okay, they're probably not getting the best players. I'll go see Gotham instead. But with the stated objective of being a first division league, a first division team, I think it does put you into that category. Just with that comes a lot more scrutiny, scrutiny, a lot more spotlight and a lot smaller window to make things happen. Interesting stuff. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig into USL, SL, 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 and the format and how it's all going to work, the teams, and much more. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to the big thing. We are talking about the USL Super League. Uh, Taylor, it's... uh... It's coming in August, as we've mentioned. Eight teams, plenty more to come. Plenty more uh, have their spots reserved, it appears. Um, we're running through the winter. We're doing a, win- uh, mm-hmm. a, 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 a European-style format. What else do we know about the teams, the structures, everything else? Not a ton. Uh, <laughs> of the eight teams, I believe, you look at the uh, the Wikipedia page, we've got TBA and TBA and TBA and TBA and then TBA and then Lexington SC, uh, Spokane uh, Zephyr FC and Tampa Bay Sun FC. So three of the five, three of the eight teams, excuse me, have names. So that's good. Uh, there are two teams playing in TBA Stadium. So that uh, that I guess remains to be seen. TBA have done really well with the sponsorship. They really have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, jo- Joe ran through where they will be located. It is sort of hilarious to then look at them all on a map and realize it's. What six on the east, eight on the yep. east coast? You've got one in Dallas, and then Spokane up in Washington. They are going to be collecting miles, baby. some miles. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that is where my trepidation about this league really kicks into another gear. And and I can see a reality in which they decided uh, the Super League decided. Look, we're going to make this announcement. We want to let everyone know we've been awarded Division One sanctioning. So even though we have a, a lot of stuff to figure out and a lot of moving parts still to be calculated. 
we're just going to roll with it, announce the league, announce our objectives and expectations, and then we will, I think, continue to roll out things to keep interest there. So there's going to be a name probably in a month and another name in another month and a new club in another month. And I think that's how they're going to kind of keep interest alive. But in the short term, to immediately be put into a league where you're competing with NWSL, which is actively expanding as as we speak and has much more national coverage, both in terms of geography and in terms of media rights. I believe the new league does not yet have a media deal. Correct. Um, it, it, it feels like you are kind of throwing yourself into the frying pan right away while still also being in the fire simultaneously. It's a tough position, but I think it's it's interesting, and I'm really excited to see how these teams build towards having a league in six months when you still have teams that aren't even announced. I would then add the caveat that I believe we don't even have our, our full roster rules established for Major also League correct. Soccer and the season starts next yep. week. So it's not as though every other league in America has everything figured out and this one is the one that's trying to be a little bit experimental. It is kind of par for the course. It's yeah. just a lot to have to figure out in relatively short order. Yeah, there's a lot of flesh still to be put on the bones here in terms of format and roster rules and stuff like that. Um, we do have some idea of expansion spots, though, right, to fill out yeah. that that map. So is there that are. Not, um, we do. Sorry, Graham. Is that not cart before the horse? Like, I keep hearing them talk about all the expansion spots, and it's like, yeah, shouldn't you have your first season? Like, shouldn't you maybe have some team names <laughs> and maybe get that stuff set? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're just, you know, they're just going to see how it pans out and then yeah. really commit to it if they want to further down the line. So the, the teams that, or the locations, excuse me, that I've, I've read uh, are East Ridge, Indianapolis, Jacksonville, Madison, Oakland, uh, Joe's very own Phoenix, Tucson, Arkansas, and uh, Palm Beach are the yeah. locations, apparently. So what once they or if they uh, expand into the league, I guess that map will fill out. A little bit and it'll look a little bit yeah and, and disappointingly it looks like the phoenix team were taking the phoenix rising stadium and not uh taking the casa grande uh metropolitan area <laughs> oh, which is you know where they so, get the, the tba cast. arena casa grande <laughs> <laughs> joe i have a question about phoenix for a moment so yeah. I-, I think i'm a little bit more cautious about this new league than maybe anyone else on this podcast and part of that is going back and reading the reporting from 2023 when yeah. they announced they were going for Division One sanctioning. And there are quotes in there about how, like, uh, we will absolutely be able to have at least 10 to 12 teams when we launch the season. Well, that has not gone according to plan. They included Phoenix in that initial list of teams that were definitely going to be involved in expansion, which, from what I've read, was news to Phoenix, who were maybe not aware that they were fully in the calculations for being one of the initial franchises which is why they're not so there's an immediate sort of disconnect between what was announced and where we are now and that is definitely where i have some questions about expansion as well as questions about the overall planning that has happened thus far i I think all that is fair and phoenix is a really good example of the logistical challenges that this league is already having in getting off the ground right taylor i think you're absolutely right to bring that up phoenix was announced as one of the initial teams and then Phoenix Rising announced, you know, not too long ago, a week ago, maybe that basically we're not ready. Like we are still looking for investment. We're just we're just not prepared for this. We believe in the project and, <laughs> and have ambitions to be a part of it, but it's not going to be this year. And I, I think there are other markets that are sort of trying to get themselves ready for this, while the league uh, as a whole, like we've talked about all the things that are still to be announced. There's a lot of work to be done, and USL knows this. There's a lot of work to be done before. The season starts in August. There's a lot of decisions to be made, a lot of branding to be announced, players to be signed, rules to be determined, TV schedules to be released, TV partners to be made. 
all that stuff is very much up in the air. There, there's a lot that's going on between now and later this year when the, when the league actually begins play. What I will say is, I'm not saying that's ideal, by the way. What I will say is thinking about the expansion and, and the markets, I just wonder how much, how much does it matter, right? Assuming that, yes, they're going to get these things over the line before August, like how much does Phoenix being a part of this league or not and one other team maybe get it to 10 like it was initially proposed – does that really matter? Are any of those things really going to vault the Super League day one or even by the end of year one into the same conversations that the NWSL is in right now? No, I strongly believe that that is not enough. The TV deal that the Super League is going to get is going to be for way less money than what the NWSL got. They're going to have likely fewer broadcast partners. The games are going to be in less attractive places. Everything about this league, and I'm not saying this as a, as a disparagement towards the USL Super League, Everything about this league is going to be a step or multiple steps below the NWSL, and that was always going to be the case. Phoenix or not, Tucson or not, Palm Beach or not, it just doesn't matter. This league is very much establishing itself. They're making sort of an attention grab with the D1 moniker, because let's be honest, we would not be talking about them right now on this episode if they didn't go for D1, and they would not have the same fan buzz if they didn't go for D1. They're just sort of saying, we're going to get out there, we're going to do some very clear things differently from the NWSL, and we're going to try to make a name for ourselves. I don't think year one, year two, year three, year four, probably even year five, I don't think this is direct competition for the NWSL. Year one, year two, year three, year four, probably even year five, this league is direct competition for the NWSL, which is slowly carved out for itself over its 12 years of existence. A, a, a piece of the soccer media coverage, it's growing, and of, of the interest of the general soccer fan in the United States. The NWSL has carved that out at a local level, yes, in their markets, and at a national level. The USL's model, as an organization, Super League, Championship, League One, whatever, has always been about the local markets themselves. That is where the battle is in year one, and probably longer for USL Super League. It's with trying to convince fans in their markets to come out and watch a professional team play. And, and if attendances in the W League, which is a, a pre-professional league that the USL operates on the women's side, and some of the, the attendances in, in general in women's soccer right now around the world and in the United States are any indication, the idea of putting a team someplace, trying to attract some good talent, making the league differentiable from the NWSL, which you know I have more to say on, but I've been talking for forever now. All of those things conceptually, I think makes sense. In women's sports, in soccer, in the United States, people want to go to those games. It seems like, and more and more people want to go to those games. If you give them games to go to, I think it is a decent bet that people will come. Yeah, Joe, it's it just I, I worry about the buy-in from the outset in August. Let's say if you're a fan, oh, you're going to be a fan of the Dallas Fort Worth team who yeah. don't have a name, don't have a stadium. We're six months out. There's some teams like the Tampa Bay Sun, which, by the way, definitely sounds like a newspaper, um, who seem to be quite far down the road. They've got like the branding, they've got the stadium announcement. I think I saw in the last week. They like they coach. might be a bit further down the road than, say, the team that doesn't have a name or sure. a stadium. Even the, even the team here in Charlotte, we're excited to have it, and it's going to be at the, the Legion Stadium uptown, which is a great stadium where the independents play. But there's still not buzz around it because the team doesn't even have a name or hasn't put itself out there yet. So yeah. it's a short run-in. And w would you be surprised, Joe, if we come to August and maybe there aren't eight teams who are good to go in this thing? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not informed enough to have a great feel. But, yeah, probably. Like... I don't know that all the rosters are going to be great, but I think we, I mean, how hard is it to put out branding? Like, I know there's a lot of elements that go into that, but I mean, we see these teams in, in professional sports rebrand all the time. I would be, I would be surprised if there were not eight teams ready to play an actual season come August. But I also understand the trepidation because, you know, maybe there were 10 or 12 that were supposed to be ready in August and now there are only eight. 
Amazing. And Graham, just to clarify, I don't think we know about the competition format just yet besides the timing, right? That's correct. I had to clarify with the guys before we started recording <laughs> because I hadn't found anything anywhere and apparently none of us have found anything right. anywhere because it doesn't exist. We don't know whether it's going to be... I mean, you would imagine it'll be playoff format, right? As most leagues yeah. in, in America are, but we don't have that information yet. It could be a straight uh, single league table. We just don't know yet. So the differentiator between this and NWSL at the moment is uh, it goes through the winter and half the teams don't have names. And no draft. That's the other yeah. big differentiator that they kept emphasizing ah. is that they're not relying on a draft. They want to have it more open to professionalism, uh, to players of a younger age, that you don't have to have the college system in place. You don't have to go through college to then play in this league, that you can come through and I think establish yourself at a younger age uh, more readily, provided there is a team in a stadium that you're actually yeah. playing in. And I, and I do wonder if that actually is the, the, the thing that becomes the lifeblood of the league mm. when you couple it with the, the, the W League, the professional league that they already have and the academy affiliations that are already in place. That, that, just, that just leads me to think, though, there's a real disconnect between the current debate around this, the USL, SL, SL, or whatever it's called, uh, right. and which we are having that debate. I think the episode of this, ti- of this ep- uh, the title of this episode will be something like, can the USL Super League topple the NWSL? There is a disconnect no. between that and um, maybe what is happening on the ground, which is more yeah. in line with what Joe is has already outlined you know the battle for local areas the battle for the the grassroots in those local areas and that is where i think this league can have some success but whether that puts it into a position to compete with nwsl realistically within the next what 10 years at least i i just can't see it and i I think the real question is at least in the short term let's say the next decade which is a short term for a league like this like who are they actually competing with i think that is that is absolutely the real question. Are they are they trying to go toe-to-toe with the NWSL? With the rollout and the markets and all this stuff, it really doesn't feel that way. I know th- I know they naturally are competing on some level because they're two Division I women's league. I'm not I'm not ignorant enough to deny that. But I think for, for the USL, they are legitimately not focused in the short term on the NWSL. That's like you, you gotta walk, you gotta crawl before you can sprint, right? And and the NWSL has flaws as well, and it's still trying to grow and find its own space in the American soccer and global soccer landscape. The USL's goal is to get people to come to these eight teams' home games. Like that, that is the goal for 2024 to expand, to try and create a fun atmosphere for people to go and watch a soccer game and spend a Saturday night and, and maybe carve out a little bit of a spot at the national level, which I think they can do because, let's be honest, it's still not that crowded right now. So yeah. I think all of this is about framing. If we frame it as, or the listener frames it as, like, oh, which league is better, the NWSL or the Super League? Well, the answer is really, really clear. The NWSL is going out and spending $750,000 on a transfer fee to sign a winger from Spain. Like, like the, the level of investment and quality in the NWSL is very clearly rising. The USL just doesn't have the resources from the jump, nor do I think it would be wise to make a swing at that level right off the bat. Let's take a quick breather. When we come back, we're going to go a little bit more into the sustainability question. And uh, we'll find out a question that Taylor teased there. Can this league topple NWSL back shortly? 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our big thing. Taylor, we were talking just before the break about the, the landscape mm-hmm. of the women's game. It's a big country. Uh, there's not there's not thousands of teams in MWSL. There's only going to be eight teams in this league. Is there a piece of the pie for everybody to coexist and be happy? So I think if you're reading the optimistic tea leaves, yes, absolutely. And it's a thing that we've talked about before, about if you're going to invest into soccer in the United States and you are actually investing, you want to make money off of it, for like cost effectiveness, I think there's an argument that women's soccer is where to go, that you can put a smaller amount of money in, but have a bigger impact because there isn't much money in the women's game. Like I think to drive that home, we've talked about this many times, but the record transfer in women's world soccer is what, like 400,000 or something like that. Like it's not a ridiculous amount of money. And so I think you can at a lower like value level or lower monetary amount start to have an impact. And so there is plenty of room, I think for more professional soccer in this country. I think you look at the map for a moment as to where the Athletic had a really good graphic about this, as to where these teams are operating, and there really isn't a ton of overlap. The DC one would be the obvious one. Joe pointed that out. Maybe Gotham versus the Brooklyn uh, team would be another one. Outside of that, you have Louisville and Kentucky on in the western side. Now you're going to have Lexington. Uh, you're going to have uh, like you have Raleigh with a team. Now you're going to have Charlotte with a team. Uh, Orlando has an NWSL team. Now you've got Tampa Bay. And I believe I'm correct in saying that NWSL franchise requirements mean that you couldn't get an NWSL team in Tampa Bay right now or in Tampa right now because they don't want market overlaps like that. So I think there is a a wisdom to what this league is doing and where they're putting their teams. There is an element of like the most recent iteration of 
uh, NASL when they had like I think there was like a San Francisco team and then also a Puerto Rico team. Like that is a pretty and like maybe an Ottawa team in there or something. It was just like a lot of travel that didn't seem like it was going to work out. I think you've got a similar thing here, but with lower barrier to entry, I think you can have that sort of expansion pretty quickly to have more markets where they feel like they can have a, a good jump and get a good level of interest into the league. So I think there is a positive in what they're trying to yeah. do and how they're trying to do it and in the demand for professional women's soccer in the country at the same time. Yeah, my, my reflex reaction when I read the story last week about the D1 sanctioning was this is really weird and stupid and that one league will have to win out in the end. And I, th- and I think in some sense, I... I still believe the the second yep. part of that, at least at a base level. But in the short to immediate term, I, I do see a world where having two competing leagues or, or having two D1 leagues is actually beneficial for women's soccer in America. And this is where I'm having to kind of separate or grapple with what I know to be or what I think to be true in men's soccer. Whereas if, if this was in men's soccer and another league was had D1 status against MLS, I'd think, well, they're, they're just going to lose out. I can't see how they would take on MLS. It reminds me of the discussion we've had about the Club World Cup, which I think is a pretty, it's not a great idea in men's soccer, but in women's soccer, I can see the, I can see the logic in that because the landscape is different in women's soccer and in, in men's soccer. And when you hear Van de Voort talking about how there are, I think this was from last year, so this would be pre um who's joining the league this year. Is it BFC in Utah, Joe, that are coming yep. into yep, NWSL? Um, so she's talking about, this was from last year, talking about how there's just 12, now 14 professional women's teams in the, the whole country compared to 100 professional men's team teams. That really does hit home how much room for growth mm. there, there is. So I think the landscape is different in women's football. Once it reaches maturity, I do kind of struggle to believe that two thriving D1 leagues will coexist. But at the moment, I think there will be some benefit for women's soccer. And and Graham, I think that is, I would agree with all that. And I think I've come across as the most positive on this league in the short term, because I absolutely believe what Vandervoort says. Like, there is room. The interest in women's soccer is at an all-time high right now. NWSL wants to add more teams. Like, there, there are room, there is room for more of these markets to draw in thousands of fans. We already were seeing that in in the, the W League, in Minnesota, and other places as well, where there are legit good attendances on the USL side. I, I imagine that trend is going to continue in large part, maybe not in every market, but in large part in this new league. What I will say is I'm not, I'm not 100% sure this is going to work, right? I think they will get attendance. I think they will get people in the door. The question is, you know, is that sustainable? Can you come in and, and survive off of largely local gate gate revenue and maybe local sponsorship and whatnot in a small national TV deal? Can you survive on that in a decade or in two decades? Yeah. Pro- probably not. And, and at that point, Graham, to what you just said, what happens when there are two largely fully formed professional women's leagues in the United States? I, I don't know. And my gut says the one that's been around for longer and has the head start is probably going to win. So maybe there's a model here where where the Super League can continue to thrive off of local attendance and that really becomes their thing and it ends up actually being good for the sport in the United States. I think there is another reality where this does come crashing down in a decade or in 15 or 20 years. I mean, that that would be where I think Joe is the most optimistic of the three of us. If Joe is the most optimistic about this league, Graham is somewhere in between. I think I am probably the least optimistic, the most cynical. You all are talking about a decade from now, 15 years from now. I, I think, let's look at this season. Like, to Ryan's point, if you don't have teams 
up and running, you, they have to have eight teams. That That's what it requires to keep that sanctioning. Maybe U.S. soccer would work with them, but I think what you end up getting then is, yeah, you get your branding in place, you throw out some players, you're not very good, but at least you are operating. But is that going to get people in the stands? Is that going to generate revenue? Is that going to make it so that you can be there long term? Or are you going to fold at the end of the season? And then they have to hope that two more teams come online and you can kind of keep that balance. The question I really have is how much money is behind the organization? How much can you subsidize some of these teams so that they can operate for the rest of the season or for those first couple of years while they build a fan base, while they start to generate revenue? There's no chance that all eight teams are going to make a profit at the end of the year. I look at a team like DC. The expectation is that they're going to play uh, in Loudoun United's stadium, which is an hour outside of D.C. So right there, you're making it really difficult for a D.C. fan base to get to those games when they already have the Washington spirit at the same time. So it's going to take, I think, a lot of assistance from the league and and maybe from the individual owners to keep that team alive, to keep that team afloat. I think the first two or three years are going to tell us a lot about how strong this league actually will be i hope i'm wrong i hope that they are very strong from the jump i and even if they're not i hope that in year two they have 10 teams or 12 teams and in year three it grows from there and they do sort of think their model works i can see a reality in which it does that having like smaller markets with maybe slightly cheaper players allows you to make enough of a profit to stay in operation and build from there but I think the first couple of seasons are going to be rocky. They always are in any league. They Great. were in the NWSL, and we've had past uh, women's leagues exist and fail. We've had past men's leagues exist and fail in this country. It's always tough to get going. There's always a little bit of, eh, we'll figure it out as the season progresses to these leagues and to these competitions. And we've had NWSL teams playing in in like outfields and in in fields that were definitely not up to FIFA uh, like requirements and were way too small or didn't have proper facilities or dressing rooms or whatever it may be. It's not as though NWSL didn't have these growing pains as well. It's just that when they did, they were the only league in the country. So they had big names attached and a lot of interest already. I think it's going to be a really uphill task for the USL Super League to get to that level that NWSL was at before it sort of already even began. And that is where, again, some of my concern comes from i think you're spot on there taylor i think it t- it's going to take patience and persistence from the league and the teams uh bear in mind in usl the men's uh, version i believe last season only two teams turned a profit so i mean it could it could be a long roadmap before these teams start turning a profit and ultimately what we're talking about here is in some cynical ways an entertainment product right you're trying to get people out on a Saturday, as Joe says, to come and watch a game. It needs to be a compelling product, and it needs to do that pretty quickly in the outset. So it needs, and it's the marketeer in me talking, but it needs the right branding. It needs, it needs to have a, yeah. you need to have a compelling reason to go there on a weekend to watch these games. So if the if some of these teams don't have names or stadiums at this point, that's where I'm concerned in terms of that run up, um, yeah. because it's all about building that community. I think, I- I think all of that is is entirely fair, Ryan, and there are legit concerns about that. I think there will be teams playing, you know, how how well developed some of the branding elements are. Maybe they get pushed out there and they're not quite ready. I, all that stuff is, I think, reasonable. Taylor, your point is is interesting as well, and I think completely valid. Right. The the one thing that maybe we're all underestimating a little bit, and Graham, you kind of got to this, is just how much the women's soccer climate has changed mm-hmm. since the NWSL was trying to find itself to now. And I understand that 
you know, that change, which I believe has largely been positive, also includes the NWSL taking up a larger share of the women's soccer discourse in the United States and around the world. And in some ways, that does make the USL's life more difficult here. But I think about a World Cup that is probably coming to the United States in 2027, a women's World Cup. I think about the Olympics, which are going to be in Los Angeles in, in 2028. Like, the U.S. women's national team will be playing on in, in big moments on American soil I think that has a greater potential to elevate the women's game in the United States than the 2026 World Cup has to elevate the men's game in the United States. I think there are these really obvious like boosts that will happen, especially to folks who are looking for a soccer property in their backyard. So all these all these concerns, entirely valid, would not surprise me if they come to pass uh, and, and sort of all the negatives end up really taking place here. I just think, you know, if I had a choice to invest in something right now on the soccer side in the United States or to start something new, women's soccer is a really, really mm-hmm. darn good place to do it. Yeah, completely agreed. Uh, Graham, I think we've, we've noted how there is enough room in the landscape of women's soccer, and, and soccer indeed, in the United States as well. Is there enough room for two competing D1 leagues, though? Because I just it's just got me thinking, like, America loves monopolies. It loves, you know, those kind of <laughs> mergers that would be illegal elsewhere. Can I just say, America doesn't love those. America has been told that we love them, and yeah. we just have to sort of go along with it. As a person who them. does not love monopolies. That's uh, what's happening right now. Yep. Yeah. As you're being told. You love them, yep. Taylor. You're being spoon fed them right now. Yes, Enjoy sir. it, little boy. <laughs> there you are. Um, so, but my point being, like, there could be enough room for all these teams and more, but in one entity. And part of me thinks, why aren't these guys combining forces rather than you know, having rival products. Because it's a yeah, $50 that... million dollar expansion fee right now to join NWSL. <laughs> no, well, that's, I mean, part that's of pretty it. much but it, it d- right? <laughs> yeah, it did, enter my, it did enter my head. I was trying to, when I was doing the research for this, I was trying to game it out. How does this end for both of these leagues? Let's just say they're both successful and the, the, the Super League is around for 10 plus years. I think it might be with some kind of merging of, of, of some sort and mm. and uh, we've, we've seen that before in in um i mean i'm way out of my depth here but that like the nfl's history is that isn't it like there's some kind of merger that went mm-hmm. on there decades ago AFL is that correct mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, so there, there is kind of precedent for that there the nwsl to kind of um just continue and extend the points already made by taylor and joe it is a 10-year head start um and i know the league has suffered some real issues recently and the leadership of the league and its member clubs have been called into question recently but in terms of community and culture they are so so far ahead you look at the attendances and buy-ins and in and, and places like Portland and San Diego and Orlando and Kansas City and um, LA with Angel City FC when you look at how the wave and Angel City FC have got off the ground so quickly that that's kind of what the Super League is going to have to achieve to really make any kind of dent in the landscape even on a, a smaller um, scale I know some of the stadiums aren't as aren't as big as you have in the NWSL but yeah I, I kind of do wonder if this ends up the NWSL to Taylor's point about markets you know, there's there, there's limitations on markets. You can't have a team in Tampa Bay if there's one in Orlando. Eventually, surely, just like MLS did, they will bring down those barriers. And I wonder at that point if if it might be convenient for some kind of uh, combination of forces. So to Graham's point, there is a history of mergers in leagues in the NFL and basketball, and I think NHL, maybe baseball too. Uh, but with those leagues, there was an independence to them that required the merging. If you had... I mean, USL Super League merge with the NWSL. Like right there, you're getting a, a separate league that has men's teams as well merging with an existing women's league. I think that could be pretty tricky. 
I would go in a different direction to say that if this league is still existing a decade from now, I think there's a chance that it, it is stronger than NWSL because if they're still in existence and still theoretically thriving, it means they've landed on a business model that does work that allows for expansion. I also think even if they won't say it, if you have a lower barrier to entry financially, it, it does open up that door to pro rel. And if you can then massively expand quickly and establish two leagues and have pro rel, you're going to get more interest. You will get more engagement because I think it's an easier sell to anybody getting into soccer is like, Hey, if we win enough, we get to go up to the next division and we play in the top division against some of the best names. Like I think that is always going to be a selling point. So yeah. maybe a merger is possible, but I, I think at, as possible or as likely is that if this league is still around in 10 or 15 years, it is rivaling NWSL because I think NWSL has its own problems. There have been plenty of scandals. We've talked about them ad nauseum because they keep happening. Um, but I think also the closed nature of the league, the questions and the debates we've already had about is it actually helping develop women's players and develop the U.S. national team? Like, I think there is reason for skepticism about the NWSL. And I think if this league, this new league, can find ways to tap into that dissatisfaction, there's a, a reality in which they are able to grow really successfully and be their own thing. I am skeptical that that ends up happening, but it is possible. I look forward to the NWSL USLSL. That'll be a fantastic <laughs> league. I think it's going to be NWUSL SLSLSL. Is that if I got that right? That could be it. Yes, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I feel like they'd go the other way and just make it like the women's league, and that would be it, or something like that. They would just make it a, a totality thing. The dub. the dub. The dub. There we go. There we go. We've got it. We've nailed it. Branding. There we are. Wonderful stuff. All right. Uh, Joe, any final thoughts on this uh, question before we wrap this one up? It feels like. Um, we're flipping a coin as to whether we think this will be a success, but if it will be, it will be a great one. Is that fair? Yeah, and then Taylor's coin is just fail on both sides. I think that's <laughs> and that's probably about where we are. No, I mean, I think this is a fascinating and risky turn. They, they in, needed my coin to fund one of the teams, so I didn't actually even get to flip it. Oh, no coin. Man, I'm sorry uh, about that, Taylor. Yeah. I got, it's a chocolate I got coin. Coins, but, <laughs> from yeah, the yeah, they took your chocolate coins, too. I, I think this is a, a fascinating and risky turn in the women's soccer landscape in the U.S., and I am I'm very, very curious to see what this looks like. Skeptical in some ways, optimistic in others, and, and frankly, I hope we get a team out here in Phoenix before too long. It hopefully won't be too long indeed, Joseph. Uh, thank you very much, Lisa, for joining us on this one. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you'd like to continue the conversation on our Discord with all the cool kids. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Ryan. This was great. It was indeed. Graham Ruffin, thank you for your contributions. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Taylor Rockwell, thank you to you, your coin, and your whole being. My pleasure, and thank you to Graham for finally realizing that League One sanctioning is the most important aspect of world soccer, and we should all be excited about it. Yeah. League One sanctioning, you'll never sing that. <laughs> <laughs> Division One, whatever. It all, it's all the same. It's fine. Wonderful stuff. Thanks again, listener, for joining us on this one. As always, we'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye. Bye. 